Netflix runs all of its infrastructure on Amazon Web Services. This includes business logic, data infrastructure, and machine learning. By tightly coupling itself to AWS, Netflix has been able to move faster and have strong defaults about engineering decisions. And today, AWS has such an expanse of services that it can be used to build a platform for any kind of tooling that you would want out of your company. Metaflow is an open-source machine learning platform built on top of AWS, which allows engineers at Netflix to build directed acyclic graphs for training models. These DAGs, directed acyclic graphs, get deployed to AWS as Step Functions, a serverless orchestration platform in AWS. Savin Goyal is a machine learning engineer with Netflix, and he joins the show to talk about the machine learning challenges within Netflix and his experience working on Metaflow. We also talk about DAG systems such as AWS Step Functions and Airflow. We are looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. If you're interested in writing for us and potentially earning some money, send me an email. I'm also looking for companies to invest in. If you are working on a company and it's for developers or it's something related to infrastructure, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd love to hear from you. Savin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Netflix has lots of applications where machine learning is relevant, and I'd like to start by just talking about those at a high level. Can you describe some of the use cases for machine learning within Netflix? Sure. So Netflix recommendations is sort of our crown jewel. So anytime you log into our service, all the shows that are recommended to you are powered by a constellation of machine learning algorithms. But besides that, Netflix also happens to be one of the biggest studios. So we spend a lot of time and energy evaluating how should we program our content as one of the biggest subscription services. We also need to constantly be sure how are we tracking user churn, how are we processing payments, fighting fraud. There are significant applications around computer vision as well. We want to make sure that uh, we are able to efficiently transfer all the media bits from our uh, locations in AWS to our users' homes, as well as make sure that you know people are we are able to do automated content analysis, QA on our content. So there are a wide variety of use cases. And as a result of that, we have a wide variety of talent internally at Netflix who are focused on these problems. Tell me about machine learning development flows. So there's this term, a flow or a workflow. What are the steps within a machine learning development flow? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the workflow that's followed inside of Netflix, and I guess this would be true for most people in the community as well, is uh, our data scientists, uh, they are usually focused on optimizing certain business metrics, solving a particular business problem. And usually their starting point is a Jupyter notebook if they are in the Python ecosystem or maybe an RStudio IDE, some sort of an IDE at the end of the day. And they'll have some mechanism of accessing the data. In most cases, they'll usually run a Presto query or a Spark query to get access to their data. And then they'll use some off-the-shelf library, be it TensorFlow, PyTorch, XGBoost, to sort of like get their work done, iterate on some of the earlier versions of their model and sort of like go through that. And once they are sort of like happy with this approach, uh, once they see some promising results, then they would ideally want to scale up their compute. Uh, In many instances, they might start off with a small set of data and they might now want to sort of like train their models on a much bigger set of data or maybe train multiple different sets of models to figure out like which is the best performing model. And then once they have built a model, the next concern is around productionization. And at Netflix internally, productionization, it's ultimately a spectrum. It means different things in different contexts. So many times it will power an offline use case where the results of model scoring need to be written to a table, which are, let's say, powering a Tableau or a MicroStrategy dashboard, or maybe it's powering an internal UI. Maybe somebody wants to sort of like take a look at how some of our various titles performing on the service, and we can have some of the metrics being driven by these models. So a variety of different production use cases uh, at the end of the day. Now, one thing that you would notice in this entire cycle is the amount of time that our data scientists spend 
on actual machine learning. And this was pretty much true before we started working on Metaflow. It's, it's pretty low. A lot of their concerns are concerns in the engineering domain. So how do I scale up my model training? How do I scale out and train multiple models in parallel? How do I productionize this model, whatever that definition might be? How do I get access to the data efficiently? And Metaflow ultimately at the end of the day, our focus with that product was to ensure that our data scientists are able to focus more on data science concerns and we are able to abstract out some of the engineering bottlenecks that they were facing on their day-to-day work. The definitions of roles are blurry in the field of data science. There's, you know, data scientists, machine learning engineers, there's data ops or DevOps or ML ops teams, and uh, it's it's not necessarily well-defined. Can you give a holistic view of the of the kinds of roles that exist in these teams and how they collaborate on building and maintaining machine learning models? Sure, sure. So Netflix is rather unique in the sense that it has a culture of freedom and responsibility. And the corollary to that is that our data scientists or in other words, people who practice machine learning or data science, they have the utmost freedom to use whatever tools uh, sort of like get their job done. But then they sort of like also have the responsibility to see their project end to end. That means starting from a prototype phase and sort of like owning the entire process to the very end, the productionization step. And which which means that there is no strict handover that happens uh, where let's say a data scientist might be responsible for prototyping an idea and then somebody else gets involved and so like taking it till the very end and then maybe interfacing in some manner with the software engineering team so we don't have those strictly defined roles at the end of the day so internally at netflix the one single job title that we have is senior data scientist so these are people who have very strong experience very strong academic background in machine learning in data science and it's their responsibility to sort of like uh, at the end of the day deliver a solution to the business problem what are the aspects that are tricky about getting a machine learning project from the data science i'm just a Jupyter Notebook tinkerer to the production process. This is something we've we've covered relentlessly on the show, of course, but just tell me about some of the, the problems and solutions to getting ML models into production. Sure. So I guess like one of the big problems that people have is this distinction between what is development and what is production. So let's let's take a dummy example here. Let's say there's a data scientist and they're working on machine learning problems, say, you know, they want to predict how many viewers a particular piece of content will get once it's live on our service, then they'll have access to some raw data that they are going to use to train their model uh, within our data warehouse. The number one concern that they'll have is how do I get quick and efficient access to this data? And once they have access to this data, they want to make sure that they are able to reliably do run feature engineering on top of this data set. Now, this data set could be humongous. And there are tools like, you know, Presto, Spark, that people can use to sort of like then do some sort of distributed feature engineering or feature processing. But then at times, it's really helpful if you sort of like get this one big data frame in your Python process that then you can interactively slice and dice. And many times the compute resources that are directly available to the data scientist might not really be up to the job, right? At that point in time, it might just be really efficient if say they had access to a bigger laptop or a bigger cloud instance. And that's that's like one big piece of bottleneck that we observed that a lot of users were facing internally where they had to very rapidly switch between different instances uh, to sort of like get their job done. Now, once you have access to this data, then the next step is that you need to train a model. And model training in general, again, might have different requirements in terms of resources. Maybe you know you need to train your model using a bunch of GPUs and uh, the instance that you're currently on, it doesn't have those GPUs available to you. Then how do you actually package your code and move your compute to a different instance, as well as move your data to a different instance, train your model, and then get that model back. That's again one of the big bottlenecks that people have to sort of like wrestle with. Now, 
let's say you know you sort of like figured out a solution to this problem as well now at the end of the day machine learning is a fairly iterative process you try out like a bunch of ideas uh, some of the ideas pan out some of those don't you need to have some running log to track these experiments and at times it's also you know sort of like left at the discretion of the end user around how do they want to do uh, this experimentation tracking and that can become uh, cumbersome really really quickly so i guess a solution that's sort of like you know very comprehensively deals with like all of these concerns will go a really long way in removing some of the engineering bottlenecks that the data scientists face uh, at the end of the day now yet another aspect that is not really often talked about for machine learning use cases is around this notion of reproducibility now yes you know like people have been focusing on reproducibility from the standpoint of code and data but when you look at the kind of machine learning that's practiced that's practiced in all of these companies there's a big element of infrastructure involved as well your infrastructure is also rapidly evolving uh, and it's not just the code and the data that's evolving so you need to take a comprehensive view where you're able to snapshot uh, the actual environment, uh, the user code, uh, all the dependencies, as well as the data to sort of like guarantee a stronger notion of reproducibility, wherein somebody else, let's say, you know, a week, a month, a year down the line, can very reliably take your code, regenerate, reproduce the exact same set of results, and then iteratively build on top of that. So, so these are like, I, you know, spoke about like a bunch of uh, different issues, and so, so these were the issues that we saw data scientists internally at Netflix uh, were facing. And that was sort of like one of the big motivations for the team to sort of like start building this end-to-end -end framework that sort of like abstracts away these concerns with all the operational best practices that we had learned over the years. So this led to the creation of Metaflow, which is a platform built within Netflix to manage machine learning what is Metaflow? What are the problems that it addresses? Sure. So Netflix has been doing recommendations for a really long time. I guess it's like over 15 years that we have uh, sort of like worked on our recommendation algorithms. And we have a very bespoke set of infrastructure that sort of like handles those concerns. Now, roughly four or five years ago, as we started getting into more and more original content, as we sort of went global, we started uh, coming across a whole bunch of different problems related to, you know, like how we value content, how we process payments, how we do customer service, where people were eager to apply machine learning to sort of like gain that last mile advantage. And all of these problems, they are very different from one another. They require a very diverse set of skill sets, very diverse set of tooling. And it wasn't tenable for us to sort of like have a bespoke set of infrastructure for each of these problems. Now, yes, you know, at times some of these problems can become super important that they deserve some sort of like uh, bespoke infrastructure, but then that's sort of like the 20% of the problem set, 80% of the problems still seem to share common enough concerns that you can sort of like build this end-to-end -end platform that can sort of like quickly get people productive uh, when they're sort of like working on these problems. So that's that's when roughly Three years ago, uh, we decided that, okay, you know, the infrastructure that we had built for uh, the recommendations uh, side of the business, that couldn't really apply one-on-one -on -one to many of these problems. And it might make sense to spin up a product, spin up a team that can tackle this wide diversity of problems in a very cohesive manner. And the result of that was Metaflow. And then last year in december at aws reinvent we actually open sourced metaflow as well so now it's an open source project and is available to audience outside of netflix as well what kinds of projects is metaflow a fit for what kinds of what's an example of a machine learning project what would the spec be for a project that would make sense for metaflow so metaflow by itself it doesn't really take any opinions on the kind of machine learning that people are trying to do. So I'm part of the machine learning infrastructure team. And even though machine learning is in the name of my team, we very rarely take opinions around the kind of machine learning that uh, our users should be doing. What we take strong opinions on is how the infrastructure should be arranged. So for example, some of the concerns that I spoke about before around moving your compute from your laptop 
to a cloud instance, storing data in a cloud data store, uh, how to do that and how to sort of like abstract that away. Those, those are the problems that we sort of like focus on. And these are concerns that all machine learning problems take care, like have at the end of the day as a commonality. Now, to answer specifically the kind of problems that Metaflow is a good fit for. So right now, using Metaflow, you can train your models in a batch mode. So if at the end of the day you are training, you have some set of data that's lying in a data store or in some data vault, using Metaflow, you can very easily get access to that using whatever libraries you're using currently outside of Metaflow. And you can bundle in your training logic, you can uh, scale it up, scale it out on a fleet of cloud instances. And then at the end of the day, Metaflow will uh, log and store all of the artifacts and the intermediate states of your model training runs, including the model that you train. Uh, it sort of like the, then provides you a very convenient ability to inspect and debug that model, as well as inject that model into any other process. So say, you know, you want to run batch inference or real-time inference on your model, then whatever that service is, you can very easily just inject your model into that process using Metaflow. What was the impetus for Metaflow getting started? I mean, there's a lot of machine learning tooling out there. So somebody must have had to say, okay, we've got to actually build Metaflow. We've got to build something to solve some distinct set of problems where solutions did not exist. What were those solutions? And or what, sorry, what were those problems? And what was the distinctive solution that Metaflow was built to solve? Sure. So we started building Metaflow uh, middle of 2017. And the ML ecosystem surely you know was very much mature at that point in time but the ml infrastructure ecosystem was still very much in its infancy so some of the other projects that you see in the ecosystem like kubeflow and mlflow they were either just starting out or they just simply didn't exist so didn't really have very many options honestly in terms of just like you know looking at uh, solutions that we could buy instead of building something uh, by ourselves and at the same time, the other uh, sort of like problem, not really a problem, but insight that we had was, uh, so Netflix has been using AWS for well over a decade now. So we had built a lot of operational expertise in terms of how to interact with AWS, how to scale out our compute on AWS, how to deal with say S3. And we wanted to sort of like bake in those operational best practices in a library so that our end users wouldn't have to worry about any of those by themselves. So this was also a great opportunity for us to sort of like build something that relies on all the knowledge that we have garnered over the last 10 years or so. And this brings us to AWS. Netflix took the, at the time, unconventional decision to go all in on AWS many years ago at this point. And uh, that, that has treated Netflix really well because uh, it's almost it's almost like the the whole idea around blessed programming languages, where you make a strong decision within an organization to restrict the number of programming languages within an organization, and it it that constraint ends up helping the organization make decisions more quickly and allow for engineering mobility and so on. This was the case. This has been the case with AWS. You know when when Netflix strongly moved onto AWS and, and has just continued to do that, that extends to Metaflow. So Metaflow is an open source framework, but it has a tight coupling with AWS. So why is the tight coupling to AWS useful for a machine learning framework? So I wouldn't say that we are tightly coupled to AWS. So when we were open sourcing Metaflow at that point in time, because we had a good amount of operational expertise with AWS, we chose integrating with AWS as our very first cloud integration. But the architecture of Metaflow is very much vendor agnostic. So we already have uh, people who have ported Metaflow to work on top of Google Cloud, for example. So so yeah, so, so we want to make sure that at the end of the day, the end user, our data scientists, they don't have to worry about any of the concerns that are introduced by, let's say, using AWS or GCP. Uh, or Azure or any of the other uh, cloud vendors. To them, they are just writing code in an idiomatic language, whether it's Python or R. And then Metaflow takes care of actually understanding their code and uh, orchestrating that on top of, say, AWS or GCP or any of the other uh, cloud providers. 
so so yeah, so that's that's the strategy that we have been following. We started with AWS because that's what we use internally at Netflix. That's what we have most amount of experience and expertise in. But there are people who have made it work with GCP and going forward as well, it's uh, something that's on our roadmap to have uh, more and more render integrations. A point of comparison to Metaflow might be Airflow, the the distributed workflow scheduling system that's often used for data engineering jobs. How does Metaflow compare to Airflow? So Airflow is what you would term as a production create scheduler in the sense that you have your ETL pipeline and now you want your ETL pipeline to run autonomously, say, you know, at the stroke of midnight every day or when some data is available, that pipeline should be triggered. So once once you've sort of like uh, created your ETL pipeline and, and you are happy with like how it's running, at that point in time, it makes sense to sort of like port it to an Airflow or say AWS Step Functions or Luigi, uh, for example. But what is severely lacking in some of these tooling is the local experience. So on my laptop, I want to make sure that my workflow runs perfectly well and then I should be able to deploy it. Uh, and that's sort of like what we can uh, refer to as uh, productionizing this workflow on top of uh, say an Airflow or an AWS Step Functions. So now, Metaflow has this notion of a DAG and it bundles in a local scheduler. So when you are writing your code with Metaflow on your laptop at that point in time, Metaflow's local scheduler will be responsible for executing your code, executing the nodes of the DAG. And you can mix and match. You can have certain nodes of the DAG run on your laptop, certain nodes run on the cloud with specific resources that you have already specified. And then once you're happy with the end-to-end execution of your workflow, then at that point in time, Metaflow allows you to compile your DAG into a specification that one of these production-grade schedulers understand. So as a matter of fact, in early July, we are going to release our integration with AWS Step Functions, which is a production scheduler um, available in AWS. Uh, wherein you can take your Metaflow workflow and with just one command line argument, you can deploy that on top of AWS Step Functions. Now, Step Functions, like some of the nice things about it is uh, it's it's a highly available DAG scheduler and uh, it allows for, you know, running workflows which can span, say, a year as well. And the operational footprint is really, really small. So you, so you get like really, really nice qualities when say, you know, you're running on one of these production grade schedulers. And internally at Netflix, we chose to build one ourselves. Uh, so it's called Mason. And there are a bunch of talks uh, online around the specific infrastructure uh, as well as the architecture details on that front. And our internal users, what they do is they'll essentially write their Metaflow workflow in this DAG, and then with just one single command line argument, they're able to export that as a Mason workflow. And this Mason executor slash scheduler has uh, a good amount of feature set around, say, how to do alerting, how to trigger when certain other workflows finish, uh, how to resume your workflows. You can set a variety of triggers based on time of the day and so on and so forth. So, so you get like all of those nice feature set uh, when you're on top of one of these production-grade schedulers. And then you also get all the lineage tracking and the data code and environment snapshotting using Metaflow. And to our end users now, they don't really have to concern themselves with understanding the programming model that Mason provides or understanding the programming model that AWS Step Functions provides. They just write their code in Metaflow and then Metaflow takes care of interfacing with any of these production schedulers. So now coming back to the question that you had around comparing Metaflow with Airflow. I would say that these are very two orthogonal products and they are not competing against one another. Uh, on the contrary, they are uh, supposed to work well with one another. So, so the happy situation would be that you use Metaflow for your local prototyping. And once you're happy uh, with the results, then at that point in time, you can very simply just export your workflow onto Airflow. It is worth revisiting this this AWS uh, question because it seems like if you just used the the AWS step functions without having an entire layer 
on top of it 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 might be just as just as useful why do you need this translation layer of metaflow where you specify things in metaflow and then it gets translated into a um, step function workflow good question so now if you look at aws step functions right it's it's a general purpose dag orchestrator of sorts right and machine learning workflows ultimately at the end of the day they have very significantly different requirements from uh, as compared to say an etl workload right in a machine learning workload you want to make sure that you know you have some notion of being able to access different set of resources so an example here could be that say i have three steps in my workflow the first step fetches some data does some feature engineering the second step trains a model the third step verifies that the model is actually seen and like deploys that model somewhere now in in the very first step where you're doing uh, feature engineering maybe you know you just need an instance that has a good amount of memory let's say you know 400 gigs of ram to be able to allow you to sort of like filter your data set and come up with the actual set of features that you need to train uh, your model upon and the model training step might only need access to a gpu instance that sort of like allows you to train that model uh, and you just need that instance for that specific duration and then the last step where you are just you know let's say running some lightweight tests on your model maybe you just need a very small tiny instance now mixing and matching these instances is something that can get super tricky if you sort of like uh, start building uh, something on top of airflow or aws step functions uh, it will necessarily like need a layer uh, so to speak on top of any of these schedulers now also machine learning workflows they are very iterative in nature so you need to make sure that you know like every single execution that you're doing whether you're doing it locally or whether you're doing it on top of uh, aws step functions uh, they are versioned and you have access to all the internal state and the aws step functions runtime by default would not provide you any of these niceties and Another uh, factor at play is that not all machine learning workflows might actually end up on AWS Step Functions. So an example here could be that, say, you know, a data scientist is working on a model and they're just happy training that model on their local workstation. Or maybe, you know, when they actually need access to a GPU, they're still kicking off their workflow execution from their laptop and not really ever having a need to actually deploy it on top of an Airflow or any AWS step functions. So Metaflow has been open source for like close to six months now. And uh, it's only now that we are actually releasing our workflow orchestration uh, integration with AWS step functions. So, so for the last six months, uh, we actually had this big gap uh, in our offering. And honestly, you know, looking at uh, how people uh, in the open source community are using Metaflow so far, uh, I think that a majority of the use cases are still in the world where people just want a workflow manager that they can launch from their own laptop. There have been a number of these types of open source uh, platforms for doing machine learning development. The, the closest one that comes to mind is Flight from Lyft. Have you looked much at Flight and do you have a perspective on how the problem solved with Flight compared to what you've solved with Metaflow? So now... The perspective that we have with Metaflow is for our data scientists, you know, like the concerns that I've spoken about previously, all of those concerns are not impossible concerns. Like people were getting their job done before Metaflow existed. So what we wanted to enable was making sure that the life of our data scientists was easier than before. And for that, we chose to not really sort of like reinvent the world. So for example, you know, when it comes to our data store, uh, we rely on S3 or uh, in our eventual uh, GCP integration, we'll rely on GCS uh, for that. When it came to compute, we rely on Amazon ECS and we have similar integration in the work for Kubernetes as well. And then uh, for our orchestrator layer, uh, even though we bundle with a local scheduler, the expectation is that when you actually move your workflow into production, you're using a production grade scheduler. So we, we didn't really want to reinvent the world, but we essentially wanted to provide this glue layer of sorts that made it easy for people to interact with all of these components that have been very well architected. Now, I'm not very intimately familiar with Flight, but from what I've read and heard about it, Flight is a very Kubernetes-centric ecosystem, and they do also have some integrations with Amazon ECS as well. 
But then they are positioning themselves more as an ETL workflow orchestrator. So if, say, your company has a requirement for an ETL orchestrator, then yes, you know, at that point in time, maybe you would be comparing against an Airflow or a flight or an AWS tip functions. Similarly, as Metaflow is orthogonal to an Airflow or an AWS tip functions, it's equally orthogonal to flight. So theoretically, you can take a Metaflow workflow and you can compile it down such that it can now execute on your flight installation. Makes sense. Do you think the, the fundamental machine learning problems at Netflix are significantly different from those at Lyft? So I'm not entirely familiar with the machine learning challenges that Lyft is trying to solve. <laughs> so it would be really hard for me to comment on that. But I guess like one luxury that my team has uh, at Netflix is that Netflix has a very wide diversity of problems that they are trying to solve. So, you know, like we have people who are building their models in Python. We have people who are building their models in R, people doing work in Scala. We have folks who are working on problems in computer vision, in classical statistics, uh, NLP. I mean, you name it. And it's very likely that we have folks uh, at Netflix who are using any of these tools and techniques and areas of machine learning. So what that provides us is an excellent bird's eye view of all the diverse set of problems uh, that these people face. And that's why for Metaflow, we have tried to make sure that we are not being opinionated about the top layer of the machine learning stack, which is essentially, you know, what sort of machine learning library do you intend to use? What sort of code do you actually want to embed in your machine learning workflow? And the opinions that we take are very much at the very lower level of the stack in terms of how do we efficiently store your data in S3? How do we bundle your code and make sure that it executes on Amazon ECS or our container orchestration system that we use internally at Netflix called Titus? And you get the exact same set of results that you were getting on your own laptop. So, so those are the concerns that we take care of. Uh, we take care of versioning by default. We make sure that all the specifics around model operations, how do you sort of like manage change management, say, you know, Somebody depends on the output of your workflow and how do we coordinate those changes and also so baked all of that into Metaflow while still affording the entire flexibility to our data scientists so that they can uh, take care of any of the diverse business problems that they are focused on. Let's go a little bit deeper into a flow. So a single flow. Maybe you could give an example of a flow and talk about flows, steps, and tasks within Metaflow. Let's take a dummy example where you are, let's say, training. Maybe recommendations. Maybe, yeah, let's let's take recommendations, right? So, so you have some input data set that's stored somewhere, and this data set could number in like terabytes. Uh, but let's, let's assume some huge uh, data. Now, the first thing that you would want to do in your workflow is you have some way of accessing uh, this data set. Maybe, you know, you want to select some small partition of this data set. Then the next step uh, would be that now you want to train a model or say a bunch of models. And uh, then your final step notionally would be that, you know, if you were training one model, then you would like want to make sure that, okay, that model is sane. If let's say you were training a bunch of models, then you would want to pick the best model out of those. So, so you essentially now what you end up with is this multi-step workflow, which looks pretty much like a directed acyclic graph. So you have this first step, which is fetching the model, doing some feature engineering. Then you have yet another step where you can be training one or more models in parallel, maybe. And then the final step where you're just confirming the results, picking the best model if you were training multiple models and storing it somewhere so that then it can be picked by some other process uh, for consumption. Now, in Metaflow, each of these nodes are essentially steps. So you'll write your workflow as you would write any Python class, and you would be subclassing this flow spec class that Metaflow provides. And every single function in your class is going to be annotated with this decorator known as step. And this will sort of like indicate to Metaflow that, hey, this is my step of the workflow. And every single function will also have the special method, uh, self.next, which will essentially tell Metaflow that, okay, once this step is done, you need to execute this next step. And we also provide some tooling. So for example, let's say you want to train 
a thousand different models. So you can specify a list of parameters and we have this construct called a for each. And you can say that, hey, the second step, I actually need multiple instances of the second step to execute. And the cardinality of this model training step uh, needs to be dictated by the cardinality of this list of parameters that I'm passing. And every single instance of this model training step should get one value from this list. So an example here could be that, hey, you know, like I have three hyperparameters and I want to train my model or three instances of my model with each of the value of those hyperparameters. So my code still stays the same and I'll just like point it to this list. And now in my workflow, Metaflow will first launch a job which will uh, fetch the data from the data warehouse, do feature engineering in idiomatic Python code using any and all the libraries that the users are already familiar with without actually placing any sort of constraints on that. Then Metaflow will launch, say, you know, in this example, three parallel jobs on behalf of the user to train three models in parallel. And then in the final step, Metaflow will then pass the user all the output of all of these three different steps or three different model training steps uh, so that then the user can compare and contrast these three different models and pick the best performing one. Now, point out like one big difference with say, you know, workflow orchestrators like Airflow and uh, AWS Step Functions. Usually what happens whenever you have a DAG orchestrator, state transfer is sort of like left as an exercise to the end user. So the user is then responsible for say, you know, let's say at the end of my first step, I created a data frame. Now my model training step needs access to that data frame. So then the user is responsible for storing that data frame somewhere and then getting that data frame back in the model training step. And Metaflow essentially abstracts all of that away. So the user isn't ever even thinking that, you know, there's a backing data stored in S3 where all of this data is being persisted. And we also have a bunch of other decorators. So one other decorator that's of note here is the at resources decorator, where every single step of the workflow, you can specify what sort of resources you want. So say, you know, my model training step needs every single model training run might need two GPUs. So I can just annotate my model training step with add resources GPU equals two. Then what Metaflow will do is it will run your feature engineering step, say on your laptop. Then it will farm out compute to three instances on the cloud, each of them with two GPUs where Metaflow will execute your model training code. And then it will bring back those results to your laptop so that then the last step can execute on your laptop. And you can mix and match. All of your steps can run on the cloud. One of them can run on the cloud. Another example here could be that, say, you know, you, when you started running your workflow, when you started iterating, you were iterating on a very small piece of data set because, say, you know, you had 16 gigs of RAM on your laptop and you can only fit so much data. And now you want to run uh, on a much larger set of data. Let's say now you need access to 400 gigs of RAM. Then at that point in time, you can very simply just drop in this decorator in your very first step. And then Metaflow, instead of running the compute on your laptop, it will actually run the compute on the remote instance and it will pipe all the logs to your laptop. So in, in a sense, to the end user, it would just seem that, you know, their laptop suddenly went from having 16 GB of RAM to 400 gigs of RAM. And that's that's been like super helpful for our users when they are iterating and prototyping, because now they are not limited by the fact that they just have a very finite set of resources, the fact that they can very easily and simply interface with the cloud without any changes to their code, that unlocks a lot of potential. Right. You know, you've talked about model parallelism here and the idea of training multiple models to test and and get a sense of which features are most relevant to a machine learning task. Tell me a little bit more about the necessity of parallel model training and how that can be made as easily as possible through a framework. So scale is a very important aspect. And, you know, as I said before, we provide a whole bunch of primitives for users to uh, sort of like vertically or horizontally scale out their compute. And if, if you look at how the cloud ecosystem has evolved over the past few years, when AWS launched uh, in its very infancy, the instances like the peak memory that you could get was somewhere of the order of like one or two gigs. And these days uh, you can very easily get terabytes of RAM. And increasingly more and more problems that earlier would need people to think 
in sort of like a MapReduce fashion can now be done on a single machine. And the overall cardinality of problems that can be solved in that manner, it's only going up as uh, days proceed. So, so the very first recommendation that we have to our users of Metaflow is that, you know, before actually thinking about data parallelism or model parallelism, just see, you know, like if your work can be done very simply by getting access to a much bigger instance. And at times that's the more simplistic approach. And if let's say, you know, you go to a distributed first approach, no matter how simple it is, it's, it's going to introduce a lot of entropy and debugging becomes harder sell. And then at times, you simply just cannot do with a bigger instance. And, you know, like uh, an use case here would be when you want to train multiple models for a particular use case. And you can very simply, using some of the primitives that we provide, farm out compute to multiple uh, container instances. At Netflix, we have use cases where people uh, farm out compute to, you know, like upwards of 10,000 containers uh, in one go. And then the third uh, piece is that, okay, you know, like now I actually want to do distributed model training. And uh, for those use cases, we provide very easy on-ramp to say, you know, for example, AWS SageMaker, you can get access to distributed TensorFlow and Metaflow will then move your compute on top of SageMaker and then pull back the results down so that then uh, the rest of your workflow can proceed as is. So that's that's sort of like the viewpoint that we have taken so far. And the... Metadata that might get kept at each step in a flow. I'd like to describe this in more detail because there is this stateful component to to machine learning training. So can you tell me about how the metadata within a flow is managed? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about metadata within a flow, there are two pieces of that, right? So one is, say, I'm training a TensorFlow model, and then there's just some TensorFlow-related metadata that needs to be persistent. So what Metaflow does by default is uh, it will take all the outputs of the user code, and it will store that in S3 in perpetuity in a content address store. And it will allow the user to access that at any later point within a notebook, for example. So an example here would be that internally our users, they train their models using TensorFlow within Metaflow, and then all of the information is stored in S3, and then they can use tools like TensorBoard and point TensorBoard to that S3 location to very easily and simply visualize their models. And all the TensorFlow-specific metadata is available to them, and Metaflow places no assumptions or opinions on the kind of data that can be stored. Now, the other piece of metadata that Metaflow tracks and stores is uh, around the flow execution. So every single time you execute your flow, we'll assign it a new ID and we'll execute the flow in an isolated user namespace. And uh, we ship with a metadata service where we'll track all of these pieces of metadata uh, so that at any point in the future, you can go in and you can be like, hey, I had this training run. I need to know what was the model that was generated by 360th training run of my training flow XYZ. And then because we have persisted all of this information in our metadata service, as well as stored the actual data in S3, we can very easily provide that user the results that they seek. And that's how a lot of our inferencing use cases are also powered at Netflix, where a user will use Metaflow to train their model. And then uh, we also provide a function as a service platform where they'll very simply write some Pythonic functions uh, referring back to the artifacts or the models that were produced by some of their prior training runs. And then our function as a service platform will just take that function and host it as a microservice for them. Interesting. Could we talk more about the underlying AWS systems that would be called by one of these step function workflows. So in other words, um, you know, you've mentioned like data warehousing and S3, of course, but I just like to know more about the AWS services that you've settled on for different components of implementing one of these, these Metaflow flows. So nominally what Metaflow needs is a place to store the data. So we rely on S3 as our data layer. 
then we need a place to compute or execute the user code. So our current integration is with AWS Batch, which is essentially one way to visualize AWS Batch is that it's it's a job queue in front of Amazon ECS. And then uh, the third component, if people need access to that, is some way of offloading the execution of their flow from their laptop uh, to the cloud. And that's where we use AWS Step Functions. Uh, so that's, again, yet another managed service. And then we also have this metadata service, which is thin Flask app on top of RDS. And this metadata service is an optional component. So if, let's say, you intend to collaborate with other people and give other people access to the models that you have built, then this metadata service is going to act as a lookup service to know where actually that model is stored in S3. Uh, but, but besides that, there are no other components to Metaflow. Metaflow, at the end of the day, ships as a Python library. So if you have an S3 bucket, if you have an AWS batch job queue, uh, then you can very simply just pip install Metaflow, uh, configure it with uh, these uh, this information, and you can get going. And you would pretty much have the exact same setup that data scientists at Netflix have for their production deployments. I'd like to know more about what are the pain points that you are still experiencing even after building Metaflow. What do you think is on the horizon for what else you might build into the platform? Sure. So, so I think we've like barely scratched the surface in terms of machine learning infrastructure. One problem area or one area that we are focusing on uh, recently is around this notion of model ops. So collaboration is a big, big thing uh, in software engineering in general, right? And software engineering has made big strides with the notion of version control, but we still lack that functionality in the domain of machine learning systems. And now that we have enabled people to be self-sufficient in building these workflows end-to-end, very quickly you sort of like find yourself in a situation where different data scientists, they'll write workflows which depend on other workflows or which depend on the outputs of other workflows. And in the domain of, let's say, you know, like ETLs, the notion of failure is limited to catastrophic failures, where if something is not working, then your pipeline fails. While for machine learning systems, uh, failures are really hard to triage and even harder to identify in the first place. You know, your uh, weights are going to be off by a little bit, but you wouldn't necessarily know if uh, that's expected because of changes in your data or if, you know, say some underlying dependency changed under your feet. So building tools to identify these sort of like problems and prevent these from happening, uh, that's sort of like a big focus for my team. So we already have some solution out there. So uh, for example, we have this very tight integration with Conda, which sort of like allows us to create this uh, encapsulated closure of the user's compute, which has the user code, the data, the dependencies, and then we ship around this closure uh, and we make sure that you know the execution characteristics of this closure, they stay immutable. But we still need to do a lot of work where the user sort of like takes an action, changes their workflow, and that can cause issues in downstream workflows or downstream applications. And we want to sort of like provide appropriate tooling for our user base so that they can prevent and identify these issues and sort of like get ahead of these. Yeah, I'd like to kind of close off with just a, a high-level question, which is when I think about machine learning models and developing a feedback loop between the user and the developers on the machine learning model, you would always like to have some mechanism for getting feedback from the user, from knowing what is working and what is not working within a machine learning model. Because obviously, you know, you can always have features that you're going to be training the model around, but there's sometimes where the features that you might uh, put plug into your model are not really telling you enough information about whether or not a model is working. Are, are there any opportunities you see for for developing better mechanisms for getting feedback from a user? Like, for example, in in a passive experience like Netflix, when I'm sitting there, I'm watching the film, and you you know you you can't really tell how much I'm liking the film unless I do something explicit like stopping it. But that's sort of a coarse grained 
coarse-grained input mechanism. I'm wondering about, you know, finer-grained input mechanisms, if you have any ideas around that. It's, it's a journey in the sense that, you know, if you look at, say, 10 years ago, the contract between data scientists and software engineering teams was this notion of an idea where data scientists would prototype an idea and then there would be machine learning engineers and data uh, other software engineers will take that idea and sort of like build a machine learning workflow and a machine learning system around it. And the problem that people used to run into was that software engineers, they have a different vocabulary and data scientists, they have a different vocabulary. So often like these two worlds wouldn't really understand what are the characteristics of a well-functioning system. And then slowly we moved to a world where the contract shifted to a model where the data scientists were responsible for building and training a model. And then that model was embedded into a production system. And in that scenario, again, there was this sort of like uh, a dichotomy of sorts uh, where the data scientist has built a model, but now they don't necessarily have control over how their model is being scored. I mean, they might still be responsible for the business logic, but they don't have complete control over the actual input. How is that input being generated? Do you have any sort of like skew in terms of the features that are being passed into your model at inference time? Now with Metaflow and with some of the other tools in the ecosystem, the contract has changed to being an API where the data scientist at the end of the day is responsible for delivering an API to the software engineering teams. And the software engineering teams can then are completely abstracted away from any of the machine learning concerns. And I guess the next frontier is that, okay, you know, like how do we sort of like give more and more control or uh, more and more flexibility uh, to the data scientists uh, so that they are in control over identifying what is the actual input that is being passed to their model? Is it well-formed or not? And it's, it's a very, very hard problem. Uh, I know there are plenty of individuals, plenty of companies who are hard at work trying to find a solution to that. And it's, it's something that we are also keeping an eye open and something that will very soon be on our roadmap as well. Savin, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you.